Welcome to Composer Conversations. I'm your host, David Casina, and for this inaugural episode, I'll be chatting with Christopher Willis on his fantastic new score to Armando Annucci's The Personal History of David Copperfield. Willis is an Emmy-nominated composer of film, television, and game music. Credits include music for the award-winning series Veep, Disney Mickey Mouse, and Disney Junior's The Lion Guard. Willis's first feature film score to The Death of Stalin in 2017 generated critical acclaim and catapulted him into the spotlight as a composer to watch out for. I spoke with Christopher about his formative years in music, his experiences in academia, and some of the principles that he's applied towards his latest score, The Personal History of David Copperfield. the catalyst that inspired you towards a career in music? Uh, I often find when people ask me this question that um, the, the, the biggest single spark was um, all sort of bound up with my granddad when I was a little kid. Uh, he was an engineer, but he was also a, uh, an amateur pianist and loved music and loved music theory. And I remember having a conversation with him. I must have learned a tiny bit of piano at that point just talking about the harmonic series and about chords and he would show me like some tiny little thing like just a a a nice little spacing of a chord and I would realize I could go off and with that one thing I could fool around and and create something different um and that that was a very sort of uh moment an important sort of interaction for me that kind of problem solving hands-on nuts and bolts almost almost sort of engineering type attitude to music um uh that i that i that sort of spark that i that i got from uh, from my granddad and you went um i guess you started studying piano at, at eight and then uh went to the royal academy of music uh for a piano performance right you were more going in that that vein or that line rather than composing early on is that correct yeah, that's right. I was very, I was just very keen on music uh, uh, of all sorts uh, as a teenager, and um, um, and then gradually more, more just in, like focusing on classical music, but but still in a very sort of general way. And I did my undergrad at, at Cambridge, um, which is sort of a fairly dry. Um, academic course a bit like if you if you went to university to study english literature ra- rather than acting or 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 directing or writing or or something um so in in britain as the, the there is, i don't know if this is still the case but it used to be the case that um uh there was some anxiety about putting all your eggs in one basket and studying um piano say or 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 composition uh right out of the gate as an undergrad um I don't know if this is a sort of peculiarly British thing, but but since I was still showing signs of being interested in lots of things, I was I was encouraged to uh, to go to Cambridge and do the undergrad there. Um, I think I think was was a good idea for me. But once I was there, I did yeah I started playing the piano all the time, and after my undergrad was finished, I went off to London and studied the piano and and sort of sort of thought that I was just going to be a pianist. Um, uh, but yeah, after a few years of that, um, I was just 
I was I just just was was finding that my 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 brain was always thinking about about writing music and just about thinking about music in so many other ways. I was sort of struggling with um with really uh, uh, uh committing to that lifestyle. I was fi- I was sort of I sort of became a concert pianist and I was traveling around and and doing recitals. Not not kind of at the uh, uh, at the top level, but I was I I was I was that would be what you'd have to describe my career as and I just was finding that it wasn't just wasn't uh wasn't a perfect fit for me. So I um I went back to Cambridge again and I was very grateful um to this this sense that that universities sometimes can give you of being a sort of refuge. I felt that Cambridge was doing a job that it had been set up, you know, 800 years earlier to do of sort of taking taking confused scholars and giving them kind of a, a, another chance to figure out who they who they are. So I kind of I I went back out of the real world back into Cambridge again and and with that extra bit of time in my 20s i suddenly seemed to change direction and and i was i was teaching music in various ways i was teaching analysis teaching composition and i just started getting really fired up about writing music and then specifically about film music um uh and i carried on playing the piano i mean i still play the piano now but i just suddenly felt this like real kind of um sort of fire under my ass that that I that I hadn't felt I think when I when I'd just been playing the piano. In a recent interview I remember reading that you felt that you were railroaded into modern music in the 90s as a student and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, this is a subject I've I've struggled to articulate the full f- sort of full range of my feelings about actually each time I've I've tried to talk about it. If you were a young person within classical music in Britain and you uh wanted to write music you were expressing an enthusiasm uh, in that way you could only really get your teachers to keep teaching you about um the history of music and 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 tonal composition until you were sort of in your mid teens i mean gradually that you could keep doing it as an academic thing uh, uh into undergrad but if you actually went to a composition teacher and asked for composition lessons or if you entered a composition in a competition which actually I did when I was about 9 and and the treatment that I was I received at about the age of 9 for writing something no I was I was a bit older maybe 11 or 12 um uh from some very high-minded composer that had come down from from London to uh, to to Sussex where I lived um uh it was just very uh, sort of ideologically dogmatic um uh and you had to sort of you had to teach yourself and you had to sort of seek refuge in more, in increasingly academic parts of music education where where you where you could keep doing so in cambridge i was it was i, I was hardly in a bad situation because they had a, a compulsory fugue paper in the last year so i was fine i just you know needed to keep keep studying those kinds of things but but you know it's very it's very confusing to feel that 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 you're being told so firmly that music history had this sort of organic life cycle and and tonality died in 1913 uh and and to go back would be uh not only misguided but sort of you know evil somehow i mean there was there was such such sort of um absurdly dogmatic uh, feelings in the air and and I, as i said earlier my feelings about it are complicated because i went from sort of as a mid teenager having a real kind of 
cut off and 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 not even really wanting to listen to anything after about the rite of spring then becoming very fiercely in favor of 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 modern music sort of jumping jumping on what i felt was was a was a was a bandwagon maybe at 1718 and then kind of flipping back again in my 20s thinking this is ridiculous you know i i wonder uh, i want to understand music and and uh uh and i've been i've been led down a weird blind alley and now you know come forward i'm 41 now my feelings are much much more complicated than that i mean there's an absolutely vast amount of 20th century music um uh modern music that i like uh and that i love even um i think it's a it's a period in music history that that we're going to be picking over and um uh you know and in some ways i just had to arrive at my own my own conclusions about things i mean i mean i came back to the rite of spring for instance having i just said that so i let's talk about that after a few years of of being a musicologist and i was like this is this piece of music is is essentially tonal and it's the syntax is the syntax is 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 this very interesting weird additive stravinsky thing but the syntax is is very similar to 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 music from from previous centuries and tonally it's just he's just muddying the waters but mostly it's these folk songs and they're in they're in keys and they have tonics and um it was partly the way in which I'd been taught about them and I'd been told that 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 that, that um that the logic of of music now was was this freaky thing involving kind of numerals and uh and fractions and and none of your instincts were reliable um, it was part. It was partly a, a, a way in which 20th century music was was taught, I think, rather than the music itself. There was a, there was a suspicion I had, and and as I say, my feelings about this are mellowing over the years. So I have a lot of sympathy for anyone that that was in this situation. Um, I had a sort of suspicion that that many of the teachers um, were now second, third, fourth generation sort of modern music specialists and so felt slightly like they were being put on the spot if they were asked you know detailed questions about older music by the 90s you had generations of composers and composition teachers who had kind of drunk the kool-aid and committed themselves to a lifetime of of listening to 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 modern music and perhaps um had slight anxieties themselves that they had skipped things um uh and 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 that it was or you know they 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 they'd undergone the same sort of slightly problematic education that I was just talking about um and and uh and so yeah they 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 were they they were kind of in psychologically a complicated place um some hot-headed um kid pianist in my case saying god why won't you teach me about beethoven you know what's this chord what's that chord um uh you know and and they 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 they'd be on much they feel they were on much safer ground you know talking about um Bert whistle or um brian fernie having a background in academia i'm just curious what you think the biggest misconception is of film music or film composers for that matter well for many years i think film music was probably a source of embarrassment to uh academia because film music wasn't going in the same direction as classical music um and film music was much more under sort of market pressure um 
film music was sort of existing in a capitalist bubble and, and classical music was sort of state-sponsored. So, so the sort of question of why, 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 um, why is film music the way it is? Um, now I think, you know, uh, uh, that's sort of slightly less of an embarrassment. Now, now that classical music is becoming sort of more pluralist, um, it's actually it's less uncomfortable. And of course, there was always film music that was very spiky. There was cartoon music and there was horror music. And film music's always uh, it's always been quite a rough and tumble, and it still is now. I don't know quite what the the the, the attitude in academia it is, but I guess there needs to be um, uh, an awareness of uh, uh, of of the harsh reality of film music. You know that 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 things get changed up until the last minute perhaps perhaps film music suffered from i'm sort of spitballing here but perhaps film music suffered in a similar way actually to the way opera sometimes suffers in musicology um uh, uh what did uh, somebody maybe joseph kerman said um there are basically two views on on, on opera one is that it's you know bad concert music and one is that it's bad theater and both views completely fail to understand that opera is, is something else. It's not the same as symphonic music, and it's not the same as spoken theatre. And you could say something similar about film music, that, 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 that it's, it's doing something different uh, from other kinds of music uh, that you might know that sound sort of superficially similar. I think perhaps, perhaps the relationship between the film and the music isn't truly appreciated um, for, for what it is. You know, that the, the two things right since the inception of, of of sound in film have been closely married together and the film composers have been incredibly dexterous at um at uh following the 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 course of the music i found i remember actually from the little bit of 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 academic study of film music that i did when i was a student the musicologists were almost more comfortable with films where the music was borrowed from somewhere else and didn't really fit the film because it sort of invited all sorts of clever things to say. Whereas normal Franz Waxman, Sunset Boulevard film music kind of baffled people a bit. Uh, I think they didn't kind of realize how incredibly clever a mainstream film score can be when you compare it with the film and when you see and hear exactly what it's doing. There's actually a practical problem, which is that an orchestral film score is so cumbersome, it's hard to get hold of the film with just the music or with the music taken out. I think perhaps there are resources we could all do with that we still don't really have. I would say maybe if you wanted me to do a discussion of one of my own scores, I would say at a bare minimum I need need a copy of the film in which I can switch the music or the dialogue off and on. And I'd need something like a... A piano transcription of the score. I'd rather not use the whole full score because everyone's just turning pages constantly. I actually, I think possibly we we lack the the tools to really um, to really look and listen in the way that we uh, that, that that we should. But I, I'm I'm probably 15 years out of date. Great things I imagine are probably happening in that in that field of study right now. Director Armando Annucci, in a recent promo for the personal history of David Copperfield, had gone on saying how you don't write music that sounds like film music. You write music that sounds original. And I'm wondering, that begs the question, what differentiates film music from orchestral or concert music? Well, something that I found when I was doing um, The Death of Stalin is that um, 
is that real concert music sort of always wants to have a a, a will of its own. You know, it wants to um, the musical ideas are working themselves out. You know, they're liquidating, they're dying, and another one appears, or, or they're or they're mutating. And in film music, you sometimes have to do such strange things that the that, 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 that you can't you can't just waltz into writing film music and, and, and use exactly the same muscle that you've trained to write concert music, I think. And the example that, that I use is is a scene in The Death of Stalin where I'm going along, it's in, in the final reel of the film, and I'm going along and I'm 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 trying to sound you know, like Soviet music in the fifties, but um, there's it's, there's lots of action as as the army are clearing places out, and it's all quite violent. And then the main characters all get stuck in their toilets. The most sensible thing, spotting wise, is for the for the music to stay in um, because it's going to be back again soon. And there's a some rule of thumb in film music that you it, if you can stay in in unobtrusively rather than have two short cues that's normally better because it's less it's less disruptive you 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 risk drawing attention to yourself by constantly disappearing and coming back so i so i decided to stay in but i had to sort of stay in in character as shostakovich but under dialogue and not going anywhere so i have to i have to demonstrate a, a very specific and strange capacity which is to sort of percolate in fact people in film music talk about use the word percolate quite a lot which is sort of percolate without actually going anywhere sort of modulating a little bit this way and that and varying the phrase lengths a bit but having as i write this immense urge to you know crescendo and and having to constantly suppress that (laughs) oh well there's a wonderful style of music that i'm full of admiration for at the moment and that's the kind of thing jeff beale has been doing for silent movies jeff beale is of course the, the composer of house of cards and lots of other things uh but I recently saw a score that he did to um, the silent movie Sunrise, um, a film, an amazing film that came right at the end of the silent movie era. And when Jeff um, scores a silent movie, he sort of he doesn't score it uh, as sympathetically as he would uh, when he, if he were doing House of Cards. But he doesn't just completely ignore it. It's not a, just a sort of exercise in, in juxtaposition. He sort of allows himself this degree of abstraction between the two things. I, I'm making a, a mo- motion here that you can't see with a sort of like a piece of rope, letting rope out um, on a boat. Uh, that's very interesting. Hearing that makes you sort of realize the, the, um, that there's a continuum there. Uh, you've got music that's very tightly matched to 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 a picture, and then you've got music that has no interest in 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 anything except itself. And then there's actually a kind of middle ground, and that sort of makes you realise that the middle ground is being used in films quite a lot. You know, there's 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 a feeling of if the music just ignores most of what's on the screen, there's a feeling almost of zooming out, sort of a musical uh, wide-angle shot. Uh, and then, and then if you you know if you're very tight and like I do in in Mickey Mouse cartoons, very often um, matching the exact the action precisely, it, you know you get a very sort of trivializing humorous kind of effect. Regarding the architecture of David Copperfield, did you compose a long theme and then split it up depending on what the scene or the character or the sequence called for? but ostensibly had a large formed idea or was it a, an amalgam of smaller incidental 
ideas that all congealed uh, for uh, the climactic cue, which is David's writings. It's a sort of halfway house, uh, at least in the way I've I've been I've been writing recently. So, um, if you saw my sketches, uh, were on paper because I do use I do use a pencil and paper uh, uh, when I'm starting. You'd see mostly melodies and 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 motives and stuff. And in fact, you'd see a lot of things that didn't make it into the film. But you'd but you'd notice that they're that they're they're vaguely similar. So there are sort of different ideas that I was wrestling with early on. And then there's a sort of middle ground, and I often think about this actually now with because I you know I used to be very into music analysis. The middle ground between those sorts of sketches and any sort of sketch that actually is through composed, and the middle ground is not written down. The middle ground is a is a is an obsessive noodling and improvising at the keyboard um, that I'll do for you know uh, long periods of time. And that, of course, yeah, that that doesn't. If one goes back and thinks about great composers, if they were doing this, then that is a part of the process that you never get to see. Um, I can exploit to some extent the tendency for movies to start. You know, you almost almost always want a movie to have a sense of groping towards its thematic material early on. Um, certainly in David Copperfield, uh, you did. Actually, I must say, in The Death of Stalin, you didn't. You kind of wanted the main theme, bang, uh, in one of those first um, slow motion things. And so I did just have to decide exactly what it was and, and put it right there in real one. But in David Copperfield, there was a sense that we were finding the identity of the music. And so to some extent, I could actually use that. And I, like, so, I, so I had the, the, that sort of um, a four chord thing. So, so that I arrived at while I was wrestling with how to do that very first bustling cue i was trying to find something for it to coalesce around so it wasn't just a just a, a splurge of of c major and i'd been already looking at lots of english music and trying to think of shapes that felt vaguely um vaguely in the english symphonic tradition but not gesturing at anything in particular and so i was very interested in that and you'll have noticed that there's lots of um uh, this kind of da da. There's a lot of these note pairs da da. So I was f- noticing that, and and toying with lots of ideas that were using those chords and using those those notes. And so as I was composing cues in the film, I think I was always in my improvising and noodling. I was always say about a reel ahead and had all these sort of half formed ideas and ways of ways of developing that material that were very messy but were, but were um, much more sort of symphonic and interesting than than the sort of basic things that I'd that I'd written in, the, in, in my sort of sketchbook so probably I basically had an idea that we were going to gesture we were going to uh, we were going to move towards that main theme that plays that's sort of the the summer thing and as I worked on it in those cues sort of extra you know what extra bits and connections um started to sort of emerge and so by the time probably i was actually writing the final reel i'd been i'd been very loosely experimenting with 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 pretty much everything that you were going to get in the rest of the film um, um you know and then in the in the final that very that sort of chambery cue that plays at the very end it's sort of been distilled into one kind of melody um sort of uh 
that that I definitely didn't have that at the very start, but I sort of had a feeling that it would that it would probably settle down and that that would probably be doable. I think to some extent that slightly uh, messy process is necessary if you're going to be comfortable with the actual filmmaking process, because if you sort of commit all of your uh, uh, emotional investment into some very specific thing and then find that that cue gets taken out or shortened or something, then it's very distressing. But if you're totally immersed in something for many months and, and noodling around it all the time, as I'm saying, there's actually a certain amount of flexibility. You, pro- you probably noticed that the mock turtle, the piano cue, nods at the same material a bit. In the middle, it sort of starts to... But, it, you know, it didn't have to. It could have not done that at all. And maybe in an ideal world, I might have thought that the the opening of it, the whole thing would just be the main melody, and I couldn't make that work. So the solution I came up with was a sort of middle ground. Uh, there, there are many, you know, more than one way to skin a cat. And so by the end, hopefully one has this thing that feels very committed and very uh, unified. But actually, there are many... There are other ways it could have gone... And um, it's funny, actually, I'm, I'm just yesterday started working on a, uh, I want to make an orchestral suite version of The Death of Stalin. And I'm finding all these offcuts of, of cues that I actually forgot ever even existed. Because even in my mind, it gradually solidifies. You know, once we do the soundtrack album and I do podcasts like this and, and, and I go to study groups in L.A. with my score under my arm and talk about it, um, it starts to sort of congeal and seem like this very kind of settled thing. And then I go off and look and I realize that until the last minute, a certain cue had four extra bars that, that created this really nice connection with another <laughs> cue and that's now gone or, yeah. um, uh, you know, stuff like that. I think Von Williams said to students at one point that everybody should, every composer or composition students should try their hand at film scoring because they can't deliberate forever. At, at some point, they have to make a decision and, and go with it. Uh, it, it. It teaches you a lot about about what sort of what matters and and um, what can be what can be lost, what can be salvaged. You know what what you should cling to, because you know if you if you take this very um, pragmatic attitude and you go to um, even very tight, you know, uh, uh, very tightly constructed pieces of classical music, you can still, in a, in a sense, sort of detect some of that there. You sort of think, well, you know, the stretto worked up to a point, but then it didn't, and he had to just change, he had to change one of the parts. Or, you know, um, you know, the theme comes back in the third movement in triple time, but it didn't work all the way, so he went as far as he could. Um, actually, there's a lovely... Um, Lovely book whose attitude uh, to that I always admired, and that's um, Bark and the Patterns of Invention by um, Lawrence Dreyfus, uh, where he he kind of takes that attitude to to Bark. He's particularly interested in in Ritornello type pieces, you know, where you've got a block of material at the start, and then you um, and he says, really, if you if you if you look at if you look at the material that he that's at the start, and you actually go through the process of fiddling with it to work out what you can do with it, you find that he's done pretty much... He's done that. You know, he's used every part of the buffalo. And if you you try inverting one bit of it, say, putting one part on top of another, and you find uh, it works for 
two and a half beats and then it doesn't. And you go off and look in the piece and you find, lo and behold, it's exactly what Bach did. He used it for a bit and then he went off into a flight of fancy and, and, and no one would know, no one perce- perceives that as being a kind of compromise. Uh, I think that is very perceptive about, I think, that the, the way composition really works. It's a lot like sculpting too. Sometimes, as you were saying, these, these uh, ideas uh, begin as these kind of overall amorphous masses of an idea and then it have to, they have to be kind of whittled down and, and repurposed or, or sort of bent and stretched and pulled in various directions before they kind of find their definition. Right, yeah. Yeah, and that sort of gets at a, a quality, I think, which is that things can become very nonverbal. Um, you know, a person is wrestling with a problem at great length for a long time. Um, it becomes very tangible to them, possibly difficult to articulate what, how, why they felt um, the way they did. But yeah, and as you can sort of imagine with a, with a, with a sculpture, as you sort of um, just pull the thing until it feels right. Copperfield's a very kinetic score in a lot of ways. Uh, was that something that you had to convince Armando of, or was he always interested in minimalism, sort of that minimalist vibe or feel to the score, among other influences? What was kind of the what, what was the music that he kind of um, brought to the table as far as influences? Yeah, um, I feel like I'm probably, you know, one of the most fortunate people. Um, working in Hollywood because I, uh, I I'm working with with Armando, who's someone whose whose uh, frame of reference musically um, is 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 very wide and very high minded, just just uh, uh, instinctively. So he's very he's very open to sort of anything sonically that you might hear, uh, you know, in 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 concert music. There was a there was an earlier version of that first cue. There was a, was a, a, a brief sketch that I did, where I was thinking that things might be even more sort of grotesque. It was totally hard to pin down, and I was experimenting with having like fife and and harpsichord and 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 sort of sort of Englishness in a different in a different way. And and what I discovered about the way Armando was thinking about the film is that the music actually, the most valuable job the music can do is to sort of bind the film together. Um, the people are on screen are, are, are weird enough already. They don't really need to be helped by, you know, sort of choreographed whimsically or strangely by the music. They, 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 the performances sort of just work on their own. So, but he did want this, he, he, he did want the start of the film to be very kinetic and, and um, he loves... Uh, he loves minimalism, and so the idea after that more grotesque idea, the idea started to emerge in my mind that maybe it should. Uh, I had just read the book, so I had a lot of thoughts in my head about the feeling that the book gives you. Sort of, I just was w- thinking that 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 we should set off and not really know exactly what sort of thing we're in for. Um, so that idea of like starting starting with C major but with but with a cluster sort of seemed uh, seemed interesting. Um, I think when I'd been thinking about more grotesque stuff, there's a piece of Hindemith that I'd been listening to, and I actually now can't remember. It's uh, you know there's a series of camera music pieces, and I, but I can't remember which one it is. It's one of those that starts with a kind of it's a more dissonant cluster. Um, but sort of some of my listening that had been more grotesque kind of sort of stayed with me when I was when I was trying to produce this um, 
this slightly cleaner version. And then there was an idea, I was probably simultaneously working on that one and and um, Baby Davy, which you won't know because you haven't seen the film, but it starts with the, with a white screen from David's point of view as a baby with nothing in focus. This is very close to the book. There's a wonderful passage in the book where he kind of describes trying to remember trying to uncover his very earliest memories sort of shapes emerging from nothingness it's an amazing read it's so modern and 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 striking um and so for that cue i was probably already experimenting with starting it in a sort of cluster c major and then you know ever the pretentious composer i thought oh well, actually we could do that both times it's easy you know the the idea is pretty obvious when you see the white screen of sort of starting with this with this blur of c major then the the sort of vigorous one that starts the film is sort of a slightly less obvious version of the same thing even though the film is set in a specific time period the music doesn't make it feel like it's tied to a specific era and spans a lot of different styles the temp on this film was um, sort of a puzzle to be solved because because Armando uses temp quite sort of freely, but he doesn't tend to use film music. He tends to use concert music, and he doesn't use it with any confidence that it'll stay there very long. So it's 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 quite liberating as as the composer because you you kind of know why it's there, but it it's relatively easy to throw it away and forget about it. Um, and stylistically, actually, I spent I spent some time with too much going on in the score. That it was too much of a of a smorgasbord. I was kind of bouncing off these temp pieces a bit too much. So part of the process of of distillation, as I worked on the score, was concentrating more on certain themes and sort of bringing things close towards each other, so that it does it does seem to be winking and nodding in lots of different places, but. Um, yeah, at, at an early point, it was it was it was sort of seasick. And actually, Armando helped me to to sort of puzzle that out, uh, and the editor um, uh, Peter Lambert, because we started to we started to take cues from one place and put them in another, and that that then left the way open to me to 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 write not exactly the same cue, but another one that was sort of an evolution of the same idea. Do you think a, a score as um, sophisticated as David Copperfield needs a director with that kind of vision or at least understanding of music and to that level? Is that what a film composer uh, really requires to write something of that level these days? That's a really interesting question, isn't it? There, there, there is the sort of Hollywood law that says that um, for many years, the limitations in how a composer could actually demonstrate to a filmmaker what the music was going to be like. The fact that the composer really just sat at the piano and, and said, oh, and this will be the trombones, and then it'll go, Poosh, um, sort of selling it, meant that the, 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 the conventional wisdom is that that gave composers more freedom to do what they wanted. So the music tended to, to, to be sort of quite high-minded through much of the 20th century um, because there was only so much that anyone else could do. They basically had to hire someone that had a track record and, and believe them when they told them that it was going to be great. Um, and then as a demoing process, as the technology changed in the 80s and 90s, 
directors were more in a position to say, you know what, that's too frilly for me. You know, it's too sounds like classical music, and 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 we started to get this more primal in some ways. You know, primal and 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 harmonically sort of pop oriented uh, sound that 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 film music has has had. Yeah, does that does that mean that at this point you need a certain kind of certain kind of director i don't know if i've just been very very blessed so far i've been i've been finding there is a hunger in quite a few of the people that i've been working with uh to try to try different things you know i come with my endless obsession with all sorts of vintage and 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 uh, uh flamboyant kind of orchestral uh details maybe we're about to see a whole generation of composers and film music that is more colorful and sort of looking back, uh, looking you know, looking backwards a little more freely. Uh, you know, the, 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 another another thing that one hears in in Hollywood at the moment is that the old guard who were who were composing in a very classical way found it hard to keep up with the technology, uh, and so f- there, there was then a generation of composers whose capacity to integrate modern sounds into their scores kind of really set them apart but now possibly everyone's so literate with computers and everyone's so literate with pop culture that you're getting a new kind of synthesis possibly uh um emerging um you've got people like ludwig Göransson and joe trapanese people people who i would say have have both sides of the equation so so well covered you know, uh, 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 are impressive on both sides. So, um, I th- yeah, I'm, I'm, I, it could could be an interesting time uh, the next few years. Yeah, which leads me to ask, how do you feel about um, technology in film and composing? I think the computers found it very difficult to demo really really good orchestral music, or, or there was a there was a real there was a real clash between what the computer wanted to do and what the composer wanted to do. So you tended to find for, for several decades, I think, that any time a composer tried to do something sort of legit, um, there was a risk that it didn't sound very good in the demo and it, and it died a death. And every time the composer went the other way and did something that, that the computer found easy to do, it tended to get the green light. And now possibly we're getting to a point where there are so many sample libraries, there are so many sort of life hacks and, and everyone's comparing notes and, and, and little cheats with each other. The demos still don't sound that good, but they sound good enough that you can sell um, more, a greater range of traditional uh, things. Possibly I'm finding that where a few years ago I used to always hear composers saying that Anything they showed a, a director that wasn't very realistic tended to get shot down, and the demo was at fault. I almost feel like maybe filmmakers are becoming better at listening to demos as the years go by, and they're understanding that the demo is a little bit like an animatic or a little bit like a storyboard. That if they if they trust you, you that'll actually help help things out a lot because things that sound really rubbish in the demo might actually end up being the things that sound coolest and most um, sort of ravishing in the. Uh, in in real life i was going to ask you when your transition from traditional composing to the more computer-based writing style that's prevalent in in film how did you find that whole process 
I was interested in in computers um, before I came uh, uh, to LA. I'd I'd gone through a sort of phase in my early teens of of using computers uh, and sequencing sort of little poppy things. So I wasn't completely sort of ignorant of MIDI and things like that. Although I had gone off heavily into classical music by the time I was in my twenties, um, I, I think I was enormously fortunate that I went. It was a culture shock to be <laughs> uh, to be fair, but I went basically from Cambridge, where I was literally you know had had leather patches on my elbows and was teaching a, a, a undergrads to do palestrina, palestrina and and fugue and things to my job in the studio of um Rupert Gregson Williams and his studio was at Hans Zimmer's place uh, remote control so i was right in the thick of the 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 bit of la that is most um computer literate um and people were uh, I, I I sort of get the sense now it was kind of a golden age there. There were a lot of lot of composers there who were who were just starting out, um, uh, who who are now doing great things. And it was very very challenging for me, but I did learn a lot very quickly. I basically just had to. There was no half ha- halfway houses really. There was no no question of oh maybe I'll just use Sibelius and and give people Sibelius demos. I had to just completely abandon writing anything by hand or even using Sibelius. I had to completely commit to, you work in Cubase, you're, you're presenting audio. I mean, that was, that was, a, that was a time already when, when, um, when uh, Hans's demos sounded very, very realistic. So, so that was sort of the school of thought I'm, I'm, I, I, was, I was alluding to, where you don't really do anything that you're embarrassed about uh, in the demo, you know, you, everything you do has to be something that works, and if that means you use a lot of staccato and a lot of whole notes, then you just do that. But it was, it was, it was, it was really good for me. It sort sort of taught me um, uh, an enormous amount about movies and spotting and time code and th- just a million kinds of things that I didn't know anything about. And then uh, after a few years, it was up to me to sort of try and remember who I'd been <laughs> before I got. Um, you know, sucked into Hollywood and gradually uh, adjust, adjust my studio, which sort of, sort of still looks vaguely remote controlly, uh, 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 adjust everything and, and relearn, reintegrate all of the sort of old school things that I was interested in and start buying scores again and buy myself a piano and, and buy myself a pad of paper and just kind of relearn all of the old things. I, so I, I would say I was very, very fortunate uh, and lucky to start on one extreme, and then in my uh, in my late twenties in Santa Monica to to suddenly be on the other extreme. Um, that sort of set me up quite well. So now I would say my method is sort of I start at the piano unless the unless the score is very sound designy. If, if the sound if the score has any chance of having uh, uh, a tune, then 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 I kind of want to know what the tune is early on. Mm-hmm. So I'll start at the piano, lots of writing on paper because I still think writing on paper is is uh, is very powerful if 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 you don't if you're still working ideas out. And then I'll I'll move to the computer but still be based on the piano in the computer. Uh I won't I'll compose without um without the click, without any uh any tempo track at first. That's something that I that's sort of a concession to a, a slightly more classical method. 
that I have now, and then I'll make the tempo track fit what I what I wrote. Um, so I'll sort of get more technical as I go along. I'll start uh, uh, start old school, and then and then get gradually more engrossed in samples and and mm-hmm. and technology. Do you use retrospective record in Cubase at all? I do. It's a that's a very specific question, but yes, I love it actually. I don't know why I love it so much. Lots of composers I know also love it. It's somehow. Um, somehow just really uh, suits me. In fact, often I'll just, even if I know that I'm about to record, I still won't hit record until after I played something. Maybe it's psychological. Maybe the, the fact that, the, you're, that you're not recording, that you, you, there's this sort of freedom to try things out. Yeah, I agree. I, I think there is something to that. There's a, there's a spontaneity that, you, that comes with not really thinking that you are committing. Um, Often my thoughts often go back to to two or three hundred years ago, and uh, whether it was possible to have mental tricks that that achieved a lot of these same things without the without the technology. Um, I spend a lot of time studying Scarlatti, uh, Domenico Scarlatti, and his syntax is so weird. Often, in fact, people people have often suggested that he might somehow have had someone transcribing while he was playing but i did that just if you actually think about that for five seconds it makes no sense but i understand why people say that you know it makes no sense because if when you're playing you're playing about 15 notes a second and a a single note takes about one second to write yeah i think you're right too i think that the way that technology has gone and and the processes of music writing we're sort of seeing a renaissance i don't know if you saw that um steinberg a round table that was with Hans and Benjamin Wallfish and a few other folks, maybe Jeff Rona. And they were all saying how they're, or a few of them were saying that they use retrospective record, but they also just use a piano patch rather than mocking up right off the bat when they're coming up with these formative ideas. And they just use it sort of traditionally like Stravinsky would have done banging away at the piano and sort of figuring things out and then writing them down. It's interesting how it's kind of moving full circle. Right. And, um, uh, I think if you look at, um, what did they call them? Beethoven would write a, oh, it, well, I think we often call it a continuity draft. That is a draft he would try and get down that was uh, just trying to get the sort of structure of the whole composition on, on one staff. And the the messiness of those continuity drafts strongly suggests to me someone who is basically getting the thing together at the piano and has a strong sort of gestural sense of, of the piece. It's slightly different every time. And he's picking up the pen and just trying to get the barest skeleton onto the page so that he doesn't forget what he was doing. I, 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 all of that sort of suggests to me that the, the way that a lot of us are composing at the moment where we, we do use the piano and use the computer to capture what the piano does, I think that would have been very attractive to... Um, to to composers in the past there's a sort of myth of a composer you know with their quill um uh, and their thoughts but i think composers have always been very very attached to their keyboards and getting the music from the stage of being kind of messy and gestural and improvisatory onto the page has always been um one of the main challenges i believe there's a mozart letter and i've 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 wanted to find it because it's sort of 
tells you a lot, but I haven't been able to find it. So maybe it, maybe it doesn't really exist. But I've, I've been told there's a Mozart letter where he says, I'm really stressed because I've just moved house and I have something I need to write and my piano hasn't arrived, so I can't do anything, which completely contravenes the sort of um, Amadeus image we have of Mozart doing everything in his head. Um, just to, uh, why would he say that if he if if he didn't uh, if that weren't true? So jumping from Mozart to the present, I'm just wondering what uh, the future has in store for you as far as projects, Chris. Oh well, uh, in a few weeks, actually, I'm going to Florida with my wife Elise, and we are going to see the opening of. Uh, a big Mickey and Minnie attraction at Disney World, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. Um, that uh, we wrote the song. There's a, it's structured around a song, and we wrote the song together. And I wrote all the music. Um, oh, wonderful! There's a, a ton of music in it. Actually, you'd be amazed at the enormous uh, amount. Uh, so that's going to be amazing and very, uh, uh, very freaky. I should think uh, to be suddenly <laughs> immersed in this in this. Um, experience. In fact, there are two attractions. There's that one, and there's a uh, a special Mickey short uh, that's only viewable in this one theater at, at mm. Disney World. So we've just we've just been finishing that as well. I'm doing an animated movie, uh, Lamia's poem, uh, later mm. this year, which I'm very excited about. It's about a, a Syrian refugee um, who finds a book of Rumi poetry and then has a sort of sort of there's a kind of fantasy element of her interacting with with the poet Rumi so Mm. I'm excited about this sort of chance to just be very flamboyant a big big kind of animated uh, uh, score Uh, really looking forward to that well I'm looking forward to it already as well (laughs) oh cheers (laughs) well thank you very much Christopher for your time Uh, lovely conversing with you and hope we get to do it uh, again sometime well you too yeah really really nice and uh, uh, yeah yeah uh, to be continued Thank you for listening to Cinematic Sound Radio. I want to thank Tim Burden for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the program, and David Cassina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sound Radio on Twitter and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment right now to rate and review the show. It really helps us rise through the ranks and helps potential new listeners find the show. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net.